Last Sunday, we heard from the Finance Committee, and they informed us, like a lot of churches right now, Shore Harvest is going through something of a financial tight spot, and they encouraged us all to uh, to take this newsletter, this financial stewardship update newsletter. It's available out in the lobby. If you did not get a copy last week, we'd please ask that you take one and take a look at it this week. Um, the... Uh, 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 so this week, in light of that, and, and in conversation with the elders, we decided that we would take a, a break from the book of Acts. We'll continue with the same human author, but we're going to go into his gospel. We're going to look at the gospel of Luke. And so I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke 16. Luke 16, we'll be looking at verses 1 to 9. Luke 16, 1 to 9. I often begin sermons with an illustration of some kind, usually meant to kind of set it up, set us up to be thinking in a way that when we hear the scripture, we, it, it kind of makes sense. The illustration becomes a, a framework in which to understand the scriptures. Well, this morning we're looking at a parable, and parables are, by definition, illustrations. So for me to provide an illustration seems a little redundant. A little needlessly repetitive. So we're going to, to jump in without that opening illustration. But we are going to make a few comments before we do. And one of them is this. This is a, a very difficult par- uh, parable. It is uh, uh, shocking in what it says and how it says it. It is a parable that causes a great deal of consternation. And so we are going to ask the Lord's guidance before we jump in, for we cannot hope to understand it rightly without him in our lives. And in fact, it's interesting, when Jesus, when his disciples asked him why it was he taught in parables, he said one of the reasons was so that it would be hidden from the world. The only way we can understand the truth of the parable is to have Christ in us, interpreting it and applying it to our lives. It is hidden from the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you spoke in parables to hide your message from the lost while making it known to us, your disciples. Therefore, by your grace, let us be in this latter category. Let us be your disciples. Set aside for us the concerns of this life which may interfere with our listening. Tear down the sin of our hearts which would prevent us from hearing and obliterate the foolishness in us which would keep us from obeying. Let us see plainly the message that came from your lips. Thank you that through your love and sacrifice we are here this morning among your people, under your protection, before your throne. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's take a look this morning at this parable. We're going to read through it, but we're going to stop and talk about it because one of the things that is, that's happened in the 2,000 years since this parable was first taught is a few things have changed in the world. And so what would have been obvious to the original hearers may be less so to us. And so for us to understand the way this unfolds, there might be some value in understanding things as we go along. And so we'll start there in verse 1. He, it's Jesus speaking, 
um, from the context of the previous section, Jesus also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. So let's set the scene in this tale of the prodigal manager. First of all, the word also is instructive there. That is not a, a, a mere flourish in English. That's not a stylistic choice of the translators. Rather, that is there in the text. Luke wants us to connect this with what came before. Luke, as he puts these stories together, it is not necessarily, Luke did not say, and the next thing Jesus said was this. These may not be chronological in the way that Jesus actually presented them, but when Luke is writing his gospel, he wants us to make a connection between uh, that which came before and that which we now are coming to. Well, you need only look up in your Bible. Just scan up. Most of your Bibles will have some kind of paragraph headings inserted by the translators to be helpful to us. And what comes before in the Gospel of Luke is perhaps the most famous of all of the parables. It is the parable of the prodigal son. It's a parable the world knows, the unchurched know, about the one who demanded his inheritance early, who took it and ran off to a far land and spent it lavishly. That is what the word prodigal means, to spend lavishly, even foolishly. He spent his inheritance lavishly until he hit rock bottom. And then, while he was eating among the pigs, because that was the only food he could find, he came to his senses and said, I should return home. If my father will let me be but a servant, one of his slaves, I will be better off than I am now. And so we have the account of the prodigal son, the son who spent his inheritance, inheritance foolishly and lavishly. And Luke says, also... Jesus taught another related parable, another related tale. It is why in the uh, the, uh, sermon notes, in the outline, I have titled this the tale of the prodigal manager. I think we should see those two as connected things. We have here then uh, uh, some other comments. Uh, There was a rich man who had a manager. That word manager, the Greek word is... uh, 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 lost my place, sorry. Uh, uh, oiko, oikonomos, oikonomos. Oiko meaning house, nomos meaning law. It's one who had the, was the law in the house. Not the owner of the house, but who was given control of it, charge over it, authority in it. The older versions, the older translations would use the word here, steward, rather than the word Manager. He is the steward of the house. This was common practice in the ancient world. A wealthy person who had multiple uh, uh, dwellings. Uh, They didn't have uh, uh, doorbells with cameras to keep their houses secure. They didn't have alarm systems and things like this. Rather, it would be for them advantageous to have a person live on the estate. If they owned multiple homes, somebody living on the estate would actually be helpful and protect it. And that person had the run of the estate could manage the estate on behalf of the owner. The person had authority, yet they were still accountable. Authority over it, but still accountable. 
That is the picture that we see of stewardship from the earliest pages of the Bible. To Adam and Eve was given authority, and yet there was still accountability. They had dominion over the creation, but they were still answerable to God. You may do, you may eat of these trees, you may name the animals, you may have dominion, but I'm still God, and therefore you don't eat of that tree. There was accountability that went with their authority. And so we have here a picture of stewardship in this uh, 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 parable. Now, charges were brought to him. The, The rich man isn't living here at this estate. He doesn't know what's going on. The information has to come to him. And the manager was wasting his possessions. That's another tie back to the previous parable. Just as the son wasted the inheritance that was given him in the prodigal son, so here the steward, the manager, is spending lavishly. He is spending wastefully. Probably what's going on here is, you know, he's saying to himself, well, if I got to live here and if I have the right of all of this stuff, I mean, come on, the, 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 you know, the property owner, my landlord, my, my boss, he may be okay with a 50-inch television, but I need an 80-inch with surround sound and a subwoofer and a few more cable channels. And he has begun to spend it. Oh, by the way, you got to enjoy that from the very nice leather recliner. You know, the one with the massage. And it has the built-in cooler in the arm so my drinks stay cold. He is spending lavishly. He is spending on himself what belongs to the master. Just as the prodigal son spent on himself what belonged to his father. So we have set the scene there in verse 1. And now we continue in verse 2. And he, the master, called him, the, 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 the manager, and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. Now this is a bizarre event. He doesn't just fire him outright. Give me your keys. Get out of here. He does something strange. He says, you're fired, but first, on your way out, I need you to make a record of your mismanagement. That's like putting the fox in charge of the hen house. Why would you do that? He's a dishonest manager. You don't trust him, and yet you're going to ask him to do his own audit. Go audit yourself. Go tell me what's happened. So that's what we have, the the scene one there, the drama that unfolds is there's this firing of the manager, but not immediately. You have two weeks' notice, and it creates for us, the reader, a little tension. So what happens? We read there in verses three and four, and the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. 
those of us who were part of yesterday's workday, uh, are some of us, we were laughing this morning about how we were feeling it in the, the backs and the arms and moving those logs and lifting things and reaching up overhead and the ladies cleaning in here, just all the work that got done. We're feeling it. This man admits right up front, I can't dig. I can't be a physical laborer. I can't do that for a living. I can't be like that. There's not enough Advil in the world for me to go dig ditches. I can't do it. And I will not beg. I am too proud to stand at the gate with my hand out looking for alms. I need a plan. And then he has that eureka, that aha moment. I got it. I know exactly what I'm going to do. Now, it's interesting. He gives us just a hint. He says, I'm going to do something. We don't know what the details are yet. But I'm going to do something that in the doing of it, people will welcome me into their homes. Now, this is interesting. Think about what he's saying. I have come up with the ultimate couch surfing plan. You familiar with the phrase couch surfing? Used often of a, of a, 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 like a, a 19, 20, 22-year-old guy who... who doesn't go get a job for himself, but rather he bums off from his friends. He lives on their couches for as long as they'll let him until they get tired or they get married and they boot him out. And he goes to the next friend's house and lives on their couch and eats their food and watches their television. This is what this guy's plan is. It's not a plan to get a job. It's not a plan to come up with his own place. It's a plan to be invited into other people's homes and to couch surf the rest of his life. So we have to ask ourselves, what is that plan? There's a few of you out there right now going, I, I, I'm interested in this. Couchsurfing sounds like fun. It's so much easier than, you know, getting out, going out and getting a job. So what is the guy's plan? We pick up in verse 5. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, and by the way, the implication here is that there are many. We're going to get two examples, but there's a whole long list. This wealthy man has a lot of debtors. Two examples. <clears throat> he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. A little bit about the economics of the ancient world, particularly of the Jewish world. In Judaism, in the Old Testament, Excessive interest, usury is the kind of the old English word for it. Excessive interest was forbidden by the law of the Old Testament. And so one of the things that, that wealthy, corrupt wealthy people would do to get around that prohibition is that they would, they would not call it interest, but rather they would call it uh, uh, the spoilage rate. You see, they didn't have refrigeration back then. They didn't have modern trucking back then. They didn't have the modern preservatives back then. So things would go bad. Some portion of the wheat in the silo is going to rot or be eaten by mice or whatever. You're going to have some losses. And, you know, that, that olive oil, it doesn't keep forever. It's going to become rancid at some point. And so it was common practice to, to, when you lent something out, to build into what was owed back a spoilage rate. Now that spoilage rate was nothing more than a hidden usury. 
It was padding the account to make the lender wealthy. And we see here some of the typical rates. These two examples follow, what, from what we can tell, follow a pretty typical um, ancient rate that because of the price of olive oil and because of the spoilage of olive oil, it was not uncommon to double that, what was owed, what was lent out versus what was owed. And we see that here. He owes 100 measures, and the manager says, make it 50. Cut it in half. And by the way, that's a big deal. Today, we can obtain olive oil pretty easily, and 100 measures wouldn't seem like much. But back then, it was somewhere in the neighborhood of three years' wages. I think the typical American household today makes somewhere around, uh, the income of a typical American household is somewhere right around $50,000 a year. $150,000 is what this guy owed. And it gets cut in half. That's a $75,000 savings. That's a lot of money. The wheat, same thing. Spoilage rates back then, the usuries that were charging wheat were about 20%, and we see the 20% discount. Take a a bill of 100, cut it down to 80. And apparently he goes on and does this with all of the master's debtors. You see what he's doing? He's incurring favor with all of these people. He's, He's putting them in his debt. You're no longer in my master's debt. I have, or you're far less in my master's debt, but now you're in my debt. And in that honor-based society, it would have been shameful to have ignored this, to have treated this man badly, to not have been hospitable with him. Now, if he does this for one person, maybe that one person ignores it. But when you do this with dozens of people, the peer pressure is going to be enormous. They're all going to be in his debt. They're all going to owe him. They're all going to have to open their house to him. And they're going to be in a tough spot. It will not be easy to ask this man to leave. He is going to be the guest that stayed for dinner and dinner and the next dinner, and breakfast, and the next dinner. He has figured out a way to live comfortably for a long time without ever doing another ounce of work. This is really quite amazing. And then in the first half of verse 8, we kind of have the climactic scene. The whole thing's been unfolding, and we're going to see what happens. And before we get there, we've got to remind ourselves of how these parables of Jesus ordinarily work. For it is a common thing, if you're familiar with the parables of Jesus, you will recognize this idea of a master. This was a common figure in Jesus' parables. Many of his parables have a master. And the master is always a a God. It is always in the story, in the parable, the master is always is a picture of God. In the previous parable of the prodigal son, the master of that house, the father, is the one who is, uh, portrays God in the story and welcomes home the wayward son. And so this is, uh, uh, the master here is God, and we have uh, uh, plenty of examples of where the master has had to deal with, with servants or stewards or, or uh, employees who were corrupt in one way or another. 
In Matthew 18, we have the parable of the ungrateful servant. You may remember what happened. The, the, the master says, hey, you owe me. And the servant says, I can't pay. I don't have it. Will you please have mercy on me? And the master says, yes, I will. And has compassion on him. And the servant, who was just freed from his debt, goes out into the street, grabs a man who owed him but a mere fraction of what he had owed, and begins to beat him. Pay up. And the master hears about this and says, what did you do? I treated you with mercy. I cut your debt. And you can't go do the same for another. And the master takes that ungrateful, unmerciful servant and throws him in jail. The master comes and deals with the corruption of the servant. In Matthew 21, we have the parable of the wicked tenants, where the master sends uh, 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 one of his servants out to the tenants and says, you haven't paid your rent. You haven't given me what you owe me. And they beat the messenger and send him back bloodied. And the master sends another one. And they beat him and send him back bloody. And the master says, well, I will send my son. Surely they will respect my son. And they kill the master's son in hopes of getting the inheritance. At the end of telling that parable, Jesus turns to the crowd that is listening and says to them, he asks them the rhetorical question, what would the master do? And they all know. They say the master will go and he will kill them. And it will be just because they will have killed his son. He will have every right to go and kill them. The master intervenes to set right the wrong. In Matthew 25, we have the parable of the talents. The master hands out money. A talent was a measure of money. And he comes back after a time and, the, and he has an accounting. What have you done with the resources I gave you? And the one says, oh, you gave me 10 and I invested it. And now I have 20 to return to you. And the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. And one has five and has doubled those. The one to, whom, to which one talent was given, he took it and buried it, didn't invest it, didn't lose it, but didn't invest it, didn't do anything with it. And the master uh, uh, chides him and in fact punishes him for his poor stewardship and takes from him the one talent he had been given. The master, in each of these accounts, <clears throat> finally in Luke 12, the, 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 there is a, 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 a steward, a, a, a master of a home, who thinks that the, the owner, the master, is never going to return and becomes abusive toward the underlings. And when the master does return and finds this abusive steward, he kills him and cuts him to pieces. In each case, when the master comes back on the scene, he sets right the wrong. He punishes the, the faithless steward, the ungrateful servant. And now Jesus is tearing, telling this parable of the corrupt manager, of the prodigal manager. He has misspent the master's resources. The master fires him. On his way out the door, he steals from the master. He cancels debts. 
so that the master's income will be slashed, but his own future secured. And every listener at this point, every hearer of Jesus knows what's coming next. Jesus is, the master is going to return and punish this uh, corrupt servant, this corrupt manager, this prodigal steward. And then we read in verse 8 what happens. Jesus, well, uh, speaking on behalf of the manager, uh, says this. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. What? Commended him? This is not what masters do in the stories of Jesus. When Jesus tells a parable, when he makes up a fanciful story, this is never how it plays out. What is going on? And we are forced to stop up short Say, what is happening? Commended? And look at how, the, how Jesus tells the story. Jesus admits the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For his, remember, this is a term that's used of the serpent in Eden. He was shrewd. He was more clever, more shrewd. This is not a, a particularly, this is not the good side of cleverness. This is the, the corrupt, slimy side of cleverness. Jesus is not saying that what the guy did was necessarily right, but he is commended. And then Jesus begins to comment. Jesus begins to praise the prodigal manager in the second half of verse 8. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. This is a common teaching technique for Jesus, to make a comparison, to set in contrast two groups, and then to say, where should you be in this comparison? Remember how Jesus handled the the righteousness of the Pharisees who thought they were going to get into heaven by their righteousness. And he says, no, you can't get into heaven. And then he says, and your righteousness should surpass that of the Pharisees. It should be even more than the righteousness of the Pharisees. Jesus often taught in these comparative ways. And he says here, look, the sons of this generation, the people of this age, those who are focused on the here and now, they're more shrewd than my people are, than the children of light. And we sit here now and go, what, Jesus? What do you want from us? How do you want us to handle things? I don't see how this applies. How are we supposed to understand? We're supposed to to take what isn't really ours and invest it and spend it in such a way that it blesses our future? I'm confused. And then we have verse 9. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. By the way, unrighteous wealth isn't necessarily illegal. Um, That was an idiom that was just used of any temporal goods, any wealth of this world. Everything that belonged to this world was lumped under the term unrighteous wealth, filthy mammon in some of the older translations. 
okay, regardless of how it was obtained, okay? I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, when that wealth of this world falls apart, they, the friends you've made, may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Jesus says the wealth of this world is not going to last. It will fail. The unrighteous wealth will not hold up. It will not stand the test of time. It will be corrupted. How did he say it earlier in Matthew in our New Testament reading that we heard? That it will, it will you know, moth and rust destroy. You ever had that experience? I've had that experience. Pulled out of storage a, a sport coat that I had put away for the summer. It was a winter weight sport coat. And I put it on and I'm dusting it off and I'm standing in front of the mirror admiring how handsome I am in this sport coat. And I look and there are holes in it. Something got to it. And I couldn't wear it any longer. Jesus says, listen, the stuff of this world is not going to hold up. And what does he encourage his disciples and through them encourage us to do at this occasion? Invest it in the future. But what future? This is not about securing your future in the here and now, in this world. We see this in two ways. One, there is the contrast between the children of this generation, literally of this age, versus those who are of the next age, of the age to come. So one, we see a contrast based on that. And then number two, he flat out says it at the end there, so that they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. He's not talking about using money, which is not yours, goods that don't belong to you, to secure your future in this life. He is saying, secure your future in the next one. Now stop, let's pause right there. He does not say that if you're not bound to glory, that you can invest enough to become headed to glory. This is not a case of you showing up at the pearly gates of eternal life and Jesus saying, well, I don't know who you are. And you say, well, uh, you remember when my grandma died and left me all that money? Remember how much I gave to the church? And Jesus is going, oh, right, yes, yeah, sorry, I'll let you in now. That's not what he's saying here. You cannot buy your way in to heaven. And there are many, sadly, in churches who think that way. My goodness, my generosity is going to get me into eternal life. The only price that can be paid for your sin or mine was paid by Jesus at the cross. There is no other way to settle that debt. It comes through him and him alone. But, Jesus is saying, for those who are in me, for those who are headed to eternity, wouldn't it be a blessing when you get there and you're walking down those streets of gold, somebody steps to the front door of their mansion and says, hey, come here for a minute. And you say, I don't know you, but it's heaven, so there's no crime, so I'm going to go say hi. And that person calls you over and says, I owe you a meal. You owe me a meal? Yeah. I'm here because of your generosity in the last life. What? 
you gave to your church, and your church used that to do a vacation Bible school. And I came to know the Lord at that vacation Bible school. And I'm here. I'm here because you used your wealth to establish a scholarship at a faithful seminary. And that scholarship paid for my pastor to get his training. And that pastor led me to the Lord as a, you know, in, in my 20s or 30s or in my childhood. And I'm here today because of the way you used and stewarded the wealth of the last life. Jesus is saying very plainly, to use the wealth of this world so you'll have a whole heaven full of friends. Have a whole heaven full of friends. You know, we're quick to use the wealth of this world to buy friends in the here and now. Oh, we'll be nice. We'll, we'll buy a round of drinks so everybody will like us. We'll treat for this, that, or the other thing so everybody will think good of us. We'll give a raise so our employees talk nice about us over the water cooler. And Jesus says, how about this? How about friends that last forever? How about buying some of those? This is an astounding parable. It shakes us. But this is clear. This is what Jesus is saying. Take what isn't yours in this life anyway. It's not yours. It's mine. I'm the master. You're the steward. And take what I've given you temporary control over. And before you lose control of it, Put it to work, securing not where you're going to spend eternity, but who you're going to spend eternity with. Put it to work, securing a lot of friends in the age to come so that they will receive you into their eternal dwellings. What a great way to think about stewardship. There are a lot of passages in the Bible that talk about how we ought to steward in hindsight because of what Jesus has done for us. There are a lot of passages that talk about stewardship because of our present obligation. But this one puts an interesting spin on it and says one other reason to steward well is for your own future. It will be for you a blessing in eternity. A blessing that lasts so much longer than couch surfing in this life could possibly do. Let's couch surf in heaven, being generous with what God has given us, using it for his glory and for a wonderful future we have because of him. Let's pray. Lord, we do recognize that what we have is not ours. It is yours, given to us temporarily so that we have some authority, but we still have accountability. We have some power, but we do not own. We have some right, but we still have obligation. Help us to recognize in this parable your message to take the wealth of this world and to use it with an eye toward the next world, to keep our eye on the world to come 
as the guiding principle for how we spend what you have given us. We ask, Lord, that you would uh, work this in our hearts and that we would do so joyfully, knowing that the next life is the one worth investing in. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.